You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. There is a concept called memetics that was first proposed by Richard Dawkins in his book, The Selfish Gene. Briefly, it's the idea that natural selection could act on other kinds of replicators besides the gene, which up until the last chapter had been the focus of his book. Now the idea of memes itself has become an eponymous example of the concept, and the word is now used as shorthand for any kind of viral idea. When it comes to zombies, even more vile than the fictional zombie virus, is the idea that shambling undead humans crave brains. The source of this idea is a single movie written by John Russo and then massively rewritten by famous genre writer Dan O'Bannon. You may know O'Bannon as the writer of the film Alien, though fans may also remember him for Dark Star and his work in the 80s version of The Twilight Zone. And Russo was co-writer with Romero, of the original flesh-eating zombie film, Night of the Living Dead. In Return of the Living Dead, the zombies are quite different from the ones Rousseau and Romero originally conceived. They're fast, they know how to use some tools, they're not killed by a headshot, and most famously, they talk. They say, brains. And one zombie even explains that as an undead creature, the only thing that relieves the pain of decay is consuming fresh human brains. When I first encountered this film, I didn't like it very much. It seemed campy and silly and not at all like the really serious and important zombie films I preferred. But I was young and something of an idiot. I'm older now and still mostly an idiot, but I enjoy Return of the Living Dead much more now for what it is, a thrilling parody of the more serious Night of the Living Dead film. Cryptozoology enthusiasts may also note that Bill Munns, 
who's now well known for his efforts to validate the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot footage, was a special effects technician on Return of the Living Dead. On a previous Monster Talk, we talked with Dr. Steven Schlossman about his book, The Zombie Autopsies. In that episode, we discussed zombies and human biology and medical science. In this episode, we'll take an even bigger bite from the brains of two scientists who have a new book coming out in just a few weeks that delves even deeper into the topic of zombies and neuroscience. So let's get going with the Monster Talk. All right. So today we're talking to Dr. Bradley Wojtek, who is an assistant professor in the Cognitive Science Department of the University of California in San Diego, and Dr. Tim Versteinen, who is an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon in the psychology department. And they are both the co-authors of a new book called Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? A Neuroscientific View of the Zombie Brain. Uh, so you've collaborated on this book, guys, this Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about this? Because it seems like, from what I've read, that your purpose in producing the book is really similar to my purpose in producing Monster Talk. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to put words in Tim's mouth or anything, but uh, Tim and I have kind of been going with the argument that it's our way of uh, getting people to accidentally learn something about science. Uh, we're using zombies as a way of tricking people into learning stuff. And at the same time, we also kind of use it as a way to make fun of our field. Uh, there's a lot of popular neuroscience books out there that take uh, very fuzzy or new neuroscientific research that maybe isn't totally 100% accurate or proved or something like that and draw a lot of wild conclusions from it. And so uh, we just decided to draw some of the wildest conclusions. Uh, and I don't know. It's been a fun project. I don't, what, do you, what do you think, Tim? Yeah. So the, I, for me, I don't know. The One of the tough things about teaching science is that often it can be kind of, from the introductory student's perspective, dry and boring, right? You teach an introductory neuroscience course and you talk about sodium channels and ion potentials, and you can almost see the glaze coming over students' eyes. Um, So I think what we wanted to do is try to make the topic as engaging as we find it, right? And Brad and I have been doing these kind of joke outreach things for years. There's a, a conference that happens once a year called the Society for Neuroscience Conference. And uh, Brad and I have been doing what we call a little uh, guerrilla neuroscience where we present a poster on some fictional topic. So one, you know, we've done the zombie brain topic. Uh, we've done a, a poster on uh, the neuroprosthetics of RoboCop. And these are farcical posters, <laughs> kind of tongue-in-cheek posters that are not in any way authorized by the Society for Neuroscience. We usually <laughs> find an empty poster board and put it up there. And we notice that these garner a lot of attention. People... Even neuroscientists find reframing neuroscience into some popular kind of genre engaging. And oh, yeah. if neuroscientists find that engaging, then you know that you're probably going to also have a broader audience of non-neuroscientists also find it engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so. I, the, the, like on Twitter for the RoboCop one, people like grad students and stuff like that were tweeting about, oh, you have to check out this, this poster by Wojtek and Verstein and <laughs> amazing groundbreaking research. Uh, and so people were going over and they're, they're, you know, screwing around and talking about it. I've even got a photo actually from one of them of, um, one of the security guards working at the convention center, standing there reading our poster. And to give you an idea of the scale this neuroscience conference, uh, a society for neuroscience conference, which is this annual thing has 35,000 neuroscientists attendees every year. And so, you know, imagine your high school, uh, you know, science fair with all the posters set up. 
except multiply that by a thousand uh, and hopefully have it slightly better science. And that's kind of an idea of the scale. And so there's just these rows and rows and rows of hundreds of these posters. And I guarantee you, none of the people working at these conventions has ever really stopped and read one of these posters. <laughs> and here I have this photo of the security guard, just like standing there reading the science, the zombie science poster. And it was just like the best proof that this was working at least to some extent. Yeah, something uh, yeah. for everyone. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So the, the book, again, is called Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? And it looks like it has a release date of September 21st of this year. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes and people can go ahead and pre-order. Thank you. Uh, cool. Yeah. yeah, thanks. So the, the one of the things that we, we liked about zombies as kind of a trope for teaching neuroscience is that uh, you can teach a lot about basic brain behavior relationships by looking at the zombie and... It has a, it's a very flexible metaphor. You know, there's there's fast zombies and slow zombies. There's hungry zombies and not so hungry zombies. There's aggression zombies and non-aggressive zombies. Well, very few non-aggressive zombies. But um, they're very kind of flexible monsters to work with for teaching neuroscience because you can usually find an example of some sort of behavioral deficit that, that zombies have that you can kind of work with. And also, neuroscience has this kind of really gothic dark history of trying to understand the brain that fits really well with the kind of, you know, dark mystery that surrounds kind of old zombies. You know, if you, we in the book talk a lot about, you know, people studying the brain back in the 1800s and early 1900s. And um, some of those stories are fascinating and creepy in their own right. Uh, oh, it's so, definitely creepy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we kind of we we had this rich history of of almost horror movie style science, um, not really horror movie, but really kind of classic dark gothic science. And uh, you know this this monster that was just easy to use for teaching very simple brain behavior relationships. So it, it was a lot of fun to put together. Yeah, we get we get questions from people about you know are you going to do uh, uh, vampires or something next, right? And it really doesn't work quite as what we've thought about it and we screwed around. And the the RoboCop one worked pretty nicely, but zombies really really work nicely for this. Like Tim said, they're very flexible. So we've come a long way in neuroscience. So could you tell us a little bit about the current view of the brain's role in consciousness and normal biological function in humans? That, oh, that's it. You just want to. Want us to give that really quick rundown? Run sure. <laughs> just, if you don't mind, just briefly explain everything we know about the brain, right quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everything. So, you know, there's a, there's a total history of uh, the, the way that metaphors are used to describe how the brain works. Going back from, uh, you know, it's uh, the brain is a system of pumps uh, to pump around different humors and fluids and things like that, to the brain is a steam engine, to the brain is a computer. Uh, and I think we've moved as a field uh, a little bit past the brain is a computer onto the brain is a, uh, like the internet. It's a network. Um, and really all of the stuff that we're able to do from something as simple as uh, catching a ball, which actually isn't all that simple, uh, to you know eating, to seeing, to talking and listening and hearing, all that stuff is due to this really amazing ability for the brain to integrate all of these different kinds of information uh, from all of our different senses uh, and integrate that with our body and our, our bodily sensations and our movements uh, in a really intricate fashion. It's amazing that it can do this at all, right? Because you're talking about integrating all these different kinds of information at incredibly fast timescales in a really noisy, biological, messy environment. Uh, and how that happens, we don't really know. If we did, we'd have Nobel Prizes. Uh, 
but it's it's this idea of these coordinated networks of information flow or transfer or whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, Tim, what do you think? So, so uh, your graduate advisor, Brad's graduate advisor, uh, Robert Knight, I think is the best story to sum up our current state of knowledge uh, of the brain. Uh, and it goes something like this. He was at a family reunion about 20 years ago, and his aunt goes, you know, Bobby, 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 how much do we know about the brain? And uh, they're from New Jersey, by the way, which is why I'm framing a New Jersey accent. Uh, and Bob goes, well, we know about 1% about how the brain works. And then 20 years later, that they're at another family reunion, and the same aunt comes up and goes, Bobby, 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 20 years ago, you said we knew 1% about how the brain works. How much do we know now? And he goes, well, we've doubled it. <laughs> and that's, and I think that's about a, a fitting as to what we know. We've, we've made a lot of progress uh, in understanding some fundamental principles about the brain, and yet we still know just a very, very, very small portion about how it works. And... I think part of the problem is that the brain is a very difficult problem to even encapsulate, right? We can put a man on the moon because we've known the system of physics to get a person on the moon since Newton. Um, you know, the, the challenges of uh, getting there were really just a matter of scale and technology, but the, the, the way to get there we've known since Newton. The brain... We don't have that kind of principle. We don't have a fundamental physics of the brain that links neural behavior to something like language or attention or even simple motor control. Um, so yeah, We don't know what an answer looks like. Exactly, exactly. So since <laughs> we, don't we don't know what, what an answer looks like, we can't, we can't even start the question, right? I mean, you know, quick back-of-the-envelope types of calculations, this annual Society for Neuroscience conference, if you assume that every... Half the people at that conference of 35,000 people are active, practicing neuroscientists. Uh, and you assume that they're all working an average of 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year, which is totally not true because academics tend to work way more than that. You know, you're talking about millions of person hours a year devoted to this problem. And you know, since the Society for Neuroscience was founded 35, 40 years ago, it's, it's the equivalent of, I don't know, hundreds of pyramids, right? Like being built of the amount of person hours that it took to build those things. And it's the, the, the scope of the problem is amazingly huge and how much work is going into it. Uh, and it's just so damn hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, the reason we were even wanting to do a brief overview is because I think, uh, we deal in this show with a lot of paranormal topics. Mm -hmm. And, uh, although I think neuroscience has come a long way, uh, I think maybe, from a, uh, a public understanding perspective, it's not well known how much has been learned. And I understand, I'm very sympathetic with the problem because, for example, if you said, how do you throw a ball? Forget the neurology of it. Just forget, like, how do you pick up and throw a ball? Well, you use your hand and your arm and you pick up the ball and you throw it and there's a physics problem there. But then you think, well, is that really all there is to it? No, because how did the muscle work? How did the nerves work? How did the tendons work? And then even smaller than that, the more you dig, the less you know. You go down to like at the cellular transport level, how, you know, how is the energy being processed at the cellular level for the, mu for the muscles? And so you can easily say from a, a study perspective that you don't know all these details. Yet at the same time, you do know that it was the arm that threw the ball. <laughs> so, right. so here's the thing. I, you know, I actually think so, so to give you, again, a, an idea of the scale, there's something like 3 million peer-reviewed neuroscientific publications um, out there. So there's a ton of information that is known 
by the field as a whole, but the amount of information that any one person can know is we can't, we can't hold it all in our brains, right? We just can't remember all that stuff. So like you said, there's a whole field where we know about cellular transport and you know, all this kind of stuff. There's a whole field about biomechanics and there's a whole field about brain science and all this kind of stuff. But for one person to be able to integrate all that information, I just don't see it happening. Um, oh, no, that, probably not. But so what percentage of neurologists or neuroscientists would you say are still dualists at this point? That's a pretty small number, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So we still run into people who accidentally use the the dualist framework. Um, I think there's I think there's a whole bunch of accidental dualists in the field. Right. Um, any, but anytime anybody uses the phrase like the mind body problem um, or talks about the mind in a you know using metaphors as if it's separate from the brain, even though they know that the brain is the root of all behavior and consciousness and whatnot. Just even by saying that, they have a little bit of dualistic thought in there. No, I was going to say we have a we have a phrase that we like to use, which is uh, chasing the homunculus. So <laughs> homunculus means little. It's Latin for a little man or a little person, uh, and it's it's the idea that there's you know a, some part of your brain that is ultimately doing the decision making, right? So we say that uh, the motor cortex part of the brain controls uh, the muscles in our body. Well, and then you say, okay, well, if I want to make a movement, if I decide to move my hand, the motor cortex is making that happen. Well, where does that decision come from and the planning of that movement? Well, it comes from the premotor cortex and supplementary motor cortex. Well, wait, what is doing the decision to tell that premotor and supplementary cortex to go ahead and tell the motor cortex that? And so you, can, you, know, you keep chasing this homunculus up through the brain to try and find the ultimate decision-making spot. And studies from people with brain lesions like strokes and things like that uh, from the last 150 years really show that there isn't a decision-making part of the brain, right? Like there isn't one part of the brain that ultimately controls all the shots. Mm-hmm. So yeah. sorry, are you going to say something else? I was going to say, if you chase the homunculus, you usually end up back at the eyeball. Oh yeah. <laughs> you kind of keep following yourself all the way back and you just end up right where you started. Well, and we did do actually, an episode on the, the alchemical version of the homunculus. Uh, we did. Yeah. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, the classic, no, build your own little person homunculus, which was a yeah. fun yeah. episode. So <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually gave a, uh, when I teach neuroanatomy, I, I used to give a final exam and the question was essentially uh, something along the lines of you're sitting in your house and you're watching television and you hear the doorbell ring, you get up, you walk over to the door, open it up, and see that it's your friend. So you say hello. Describe the neural systems involved in all of this. And so, you know, the, the, it's a very open-ended question, right? Because uh, ultimately you're looking at how well does a student integrate all that information that you've taught about how all the different brain regions work uh, uh, together over the course of the semester, right? So you're sitting there and you're watching TV and your attention is focused on the television, presumably. But then the doorbell sound captures your attention. You recognize that that means something, that there's somebody at your door. And so then you make the decision to stand up and walk over. You have to coordinate all the muscles to do that. Open the door. Then you see somebody that somebody you recognize. And then that means that you, you know, so you can see how crazy this gets. And so it was uh, probably a cruel question to ask them. Uh, But it was a really good way of testing how well people can integrate this. And at the end of the day, we just don't have an answer, right? So they made it a fun by fun, I mean terrible question to grade as well. <laughs> well, uh, let's discuss the book a little bit. <laughs> and so for the purposes of your book, what is a zombie? Not a supernatural being. Go, Tim. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so we actually managed to completely avoid defining a zombie explicitly. Uh, but for our purposes, we, we defined it using um, – 
modus tollens. So we, we defined it by what it wasn't. So it's not a, it, you know, philosophers have the philosopher's zombie, which is, you know, it, everything, every aspect of the individual looks the same, except it just doesn't have that qualia of perception of the color red or, you know, the unique uniqueness of consciousness. Well, we kind of, we threw that out the window right away. We're like, no, 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 we want zombies that eat people. Um, and so what we did is we just defined zombies by examples. So we would take, uh, for example, uh, Big Daddy, who is a, a zombie in Romero's movie Land of the Dead. And he's kind of the first zombie to start reformulating human intelligence. And, you know, we kind of show his behavior, show how he retains some procedural memories but loses explicit memories and where those are encoded. Um, we talk about Tar Man, who's a classic zombie from uh the return of the living dead is that right return of return of the living dead yeah return of the living dead that's right (laughs) return Um, of the living bread yeah that was the bad sequel uh (laughs) but you know and and tarman is probably most famous because he's the most vocal and eloquent zombie and all he does is say brains all day uh so what we did is we just kind of found examples and put them in there but for the book it's basically anything that you've seen in a horror movie that's classified in the zombie genre maybe excluding warm bodies because i'm not sure that that was a zombie movie. yeah yeah that, that's a tricky one and do, you, do you strictly stick with uh f- fictional zombies you don't do anything about like the haitian style actually we we do have a whole chapter uh that goes into the introduction of the classic haitian zombie and voodoo zombie uh and talk about that yeah the, the, so the, the thing about the haitian zombies which I, it made it a perfect kind of segue to start the book is that the process of zombification in Haitian voodoo culture is intimately linked to neuroscience. So one of the active chemicals in the process of uh, the voodoo ritual is tetrodotoxin, which uh, blocks the sodium channels in cells. And that's what induces this kind of whole body paralysis. Well, that's, that's a neural blocker. And so we, we, we use even the Haitian zombies as an example of, of, of explaining something about the brain because we can use them to talk about sodium channels and action potentials uh, because that whole process is, is built on you know, blocking those channels and inducing this false state of death. So we talk a lot about that, mainly based off of um, uh, Wade Davis's book, The Serpent and the Rainbow. That was the Which is way there. better than the movie, by the way. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've tried to get him uh, onto the show before because I know that there was a people. There were people who were he was doing an, an ethnobiological approach yeah. to zombies, and right. and I guess uh, there was a big focus on whether the chemi- chemicals used could literally produce the behaviors observed. Um, so right. there was a lot of skepticism. Regardless of that, though, it still stands as probably, the, I guess, the most plausible for an implausible scenario, right? There you go. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's right. Semi, semi-plausible. It's really interesting seeing some of this stuff creep back into the cultural consciousness, though. Like, tetrodotoxin has been in several – it's played a major role in a couple of big movies, like the A-Team remake uh, a couple of years ago and even, uh, what was it, uh, Winter Soldier recently. It is, in fact, the case of, of why people die from eating fugu, the pufferfish. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that's actually tetrodotoxin when the pufferfish is improperly prepared. Uh, when it's properly prepared, apparently it gives you like a tingly sensation when you eat it mm-hmm. uh, as, as it's paralyzing some of your uh, <laughs> sodium channels briefly. But in 
properly prepared, it can absolutely kill you. Yeah. So in looking at some of these theories, the the real-life cases of zombies, do you also look at things like mental illness and uh, some of the other claims that it could be fetal alcohol syndrome in in Haiti that's behind these uh, cases? No, we don't really try and explore any actual what could cause real zombies because as neuroscientists, I feel it's almost our job and duty to say that nothing can cause Mm -hmm. zombieism, right? But of course, obviously you have different scenarios, mental illnesses or what have you, where you can get people who are aggressive, right? But We uh, we do talk in the book a little bit about how um, psychopharmacology does play a role or has been postulated to play a role in the Haitian zombies. Um, and And when we talk about Haitian zombies, we actually... You know, we we're very clear about differentiating them from the main zombies that we talk about in the book. Um, we even spell them in the traditional way without the e at the end, uh, right. just to make the case that these are you know these are actual people who are sold into slavery. Right? right. That's that's the thing about Haitian zombies. It's basically an underground slave trade, and we talk about how you know the mixture of the effect of possibly feeling like you've been buried alive, and then um, one of uh, Wade Davis's accounts was that after resurrection, the Bakor, who's a voodoo uh, priest. high priest, mm-hmm. he uh, administers Dartura, which is a powerful psychoactive Dartura. chemical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did I, I yeah, Dartura. Jimson weed. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's high, scopolamine, atropine, hyoscopine. So all these very powerful, you know, uh, hallucinogens and psychotropic drugs are part of that plant. And really, that's part of the, I don't want to call it brainwashing, but submissive uh, enforcement as part of the kind of slavery practice in Haitian zombies is you basically, they hold them in a state of mental illness through drugs. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, so we kind of mentioned that we talked about that a little bit and try to put a human face on the actual parts of, of the zombies. But then we kind of that was, you know, halfway through one chapter, and then we kind of shift away into the fantastical world of horror movie zombies. I mean, that that gets to the one of the hardest parts about writing this book, which is you're trying to do what we were trying to do, a tongue-in-cheek uh, accounting of neuroscience, while at the same time teaching people something real and true about how the brain actually works, while also talking about, you know, something kind of dark, like, you know, Touching on what Tim was just saying about like slave trade, right, and mm-hmm. brain injury and things like that. So it, it was a hard line to try and walk, where you're you're trying to be real and honest, uh, while at the same time make people sort of chuckle and think about what they're reading in a way that doesn't make them, you know, th- th- that's fun. At least we, we hope it is. Uh, oh, I think so. I mean, I, I, we haven't got to read it yet, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look forward to reading it. <laughs> Well, how, how do you deal with the symptoms of zombie behavior then in a scientific analysis? So what, what is that, how does that break well, out in the book? We, we, tried, we, we took a tactic that we, we called forensic uh, neuroscience, which is uh, we don't have a real neuro, uh, a zombie that we could stick in a brain scanner or something like that, right? So what do we have to work with? Ultimately, what we have to work with is observations of behaviors, by which we mean watching a ton of zombie movies, right? And so when you think about what are the stereotypical behaviors of zombies? People know, I, I could ask you to do it, right? Like if we're in front of a crowd and people will do that sort of slow shuffling walk, uh, maybe the groans and moans and things like that. And those are stereotyped zombie behaviors. So from that, we can deduce certain things. Like one, uh, they have movement issues. Uh, they're uncoordinated. Uh, they take small steps. Um, they have speech, uh, speech issues and then from further observations, which is you know more movie watching, 
they have uh, memory impairments, amnesia, things like that. And so we use that as the stepping stone to build up our case for, okay, uh, based upon this pattern of movement disorder, we, we can argue that the damage is in brain area A and not in brain area B and so on. So that's really the tactic that we ended up taking in, in terms of describing the book. Yeah, you just made a trip to the old folks' home. Sounds scary, though. It's <laughs> <laughs> not for you. Um, no, we. So there's actually a rich history in neuroscience of this approach. And um, if you look at you know classic neurology before we even had brain scanners, there you know, there's an entire clinical arm of of uh, medicine that was dedicated to trying to figure out what had happened inside somebody's head. You know, as a result of a yeah, Tim, fall or stuff like that. When uh, Tim says classic, he doesn't mean just like 1700s or 1600s. He's talking about like Roman gladiator days. I mean, this goes way back, way back. It goes way back, but it also comes up to like, you know, up into the 1940s when CAT scans were still coming around. Like between 1940s and, and you know, Gallen during the Roman, you know, centurion days, that's all you could do to diagnose a brain injury was – you know, take what little you knew about, uh, you know, maybe studies on animals where they took an animal, scooped out part of his brain and saw what happened. Or, you know, if they had actually had somebody who died and they could take out the brain, and look at it and say, well, he was acting like this before he died. So therefore, this brain area might be linked to that behavior. Which was rare because of cultural issues about, you know, messing with dead people's bodies, right? Like that, that, that wasn't even allowed for a very long time, too. So, Right, so you had this, sparks. <laughs> you had this very limited information to kind of pull from, but you actually had, you know, good neurologists were very skillful at identifying where a brain lesion was just by kind of deducing aspects of a person's behavior, and and you know, a good neurologist doesn't need an MRI most of the time because they can tell right away what systems you know breaking down just based on a careful analysis of behavior. So we yeah, we kind of. Ten or fifteen minute behavioral exam called the neurological exam, and it's 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 seemingly a bunch of random little sets of things and, that they have you do. But yeah, like Tim was saying, a good neurologist from that ten or fifteen minutes of you know slapping your hand on your leg and and counting you know a number of fingers that you see them hold up, uh, really pinpoint where exactly in the brain the lesion is without having to do a scan. And uh, I saw part of your TED talk. The, the TED cartoon, and you look at a lot of the possible real-life conditions that could be behind zombieism, uh, and you look at things like Broca's aphasia uh, and Wernicke's aphasia as as being behind the language difficulties, and uh, I'm a linguist myself, so I found that really interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Yeah, well, first of all, I have to, I have to say it's flipped. <laughs> it's not that we're using – we're not trying to explain real-life zombieism. Uh, we're trying to use. Sorry, I mean, I mean, in right? <laughs> in popular culture, to explain right. the, the the concepts of different kinds of zombies. Yeah. So again, one of the classic uh, symptoms I think that people think about when they think about zombies is they're not really communicative, right? Like you're not having a conversation with a zombie and trying to reason them down from eating you, right? You're just running the hell away and trying to shoot at them if you're if you can. Um, and so from that, you can say, okay, well, they can't coordinate their speech, right? They're just saying, brah, that's, you know, they're not really, uh, they're not writing sonnets and they're not able to really do a soliloquy. Um, so what do we know about language? How do we, what do we know about language in the brain? And so we use that to talk about things like uh, language lateralization. So uh, for men, 99% uh, of right-handed men have language lateralized to the left half of their brain, meaning that. Um, their left inferior frontal gyrus, what's called Broca's area, 
is uh, is for motor speech control of motor speech, um, and for ninety five percent of right handed women, it's 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 left lateralized, and uh, then mo- uh, language comprehension is a slightly different area of the brain. It's a little bit farther back and a little bit higher up, um, sort of right above and behind your ear, uh, and that's called Wernicke's area and. Uh, those two brain areas are heavily interconnected by uh, a set of wires, the brain wires we call white matter tract. It's the arcuate fasciculus. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we use this as a stepping stone to talk about what do we know in modern neuroscience about how we coordinate uh, speech and uh, language understanding and how do those brain areas interact. And uh, if, you, if you watch some, some zombie movies carefully, you actually get a lot of I, I know the actors and the movie producers weren't attending to this, but you get some very interesting details that give you clues as to what's happening in, you know, the horror movie zombie brain. So, for example, Tar Man, that zombie I mentioned earlier, that's just known for just saying the word brains. Well, he's actually doing a form of verbal communication, right? You know exactly what Tar Man wants without him, you know, going up to you and saying, I would like to eat your brain now because I'm hungry, right? He doesn't <laughs> go into this very complex, fluent speech. Uh, he just gets out the main point, and that resembles a symptom you see sometimes with uh, what's classically known as Baroque's aphasia. It's called telegraphia, and it's kind of a takeoff the old telegraphs where you had to you know, use Morse code to send messages across the country, and each letter was expensive because you paid by the letter. So often they were short. They didn't have contractions. They were just you know, to the point, get the message out for as cheap as possible. Telegraphy is the same thing. For people who are having trouble getting out words, trouble speaking words, they can think about what they want, but they can't actually get it out, uh, they'll often exhibit this form of telegraphia. So they'll just spit out the nouns or the verbs that are important to get the point across without the rest of the kind of language structure that's wrapped around it for fluent speech. So, you know, you see little symptoms like this all the time in zombie movies that for us, it was really cool because you can kind of get a more intimate, detailed look into the zombie brain than I think uh, most movie directors intended. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Yeah. You'll see, you'll hear a version of uh, telegraphy with children too when they're learning to speak. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, and it's it's a pre-fluent form of communication. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so we keep talking about these um, regional neural correlates uh, with areas of the brain and behavior. And I know that some of them are mirrored. And I've, I've been reading a lot of neuroscience books over the past year or so. I'm sorry. And I... <laughs> no, no, it's it's fun, although it can be a little bit disturbing to realize how little control you have over the sort of internal narrative that you carry around with you all the time. Oh yeah. <laughs> so uh, the the one that really bothers me is with stroke victims who don't realize they're paralyzed. That's the one that I find the most shocking because they have all these elaborate stories yeah. during as early parts of the stroke when they they, they just. They just don't it's seem to really know what's going on. Anosognosia and confabulation. So it's the inability to recognize yeah. that you have something wrong, and then you confabulate. You make up a story as to as to. Yeah, as to, it, although it doesn't appear to be uh, like uh, what do you call it? A deception no. uh, on purpose, right? No. It's the, the the brain's just throwing out a story, and out it comes. And it's, and now, <laughs> yeah, my my PhD advisor going back to was uh, uh, Tim was mentioning this guy Bob before uh, Bob Knight, and he used to say that when he was trying to figure out. If somebody was a confabulator, uh, he would just walk into their room and say, "Hey, you know, it's good to see you. Uh, good to see you again. You know, when we ran into each other at the grocery store last week, you had said blah, and you'd make something up, right? And that was it. That's all you'd have to do because a confabulator will instantly run with that beginning of the story and build on it. Whereas a normal person wow, would be like, yeah. uh, "What are you? What are you talking about?" Right. <laughs> The reason I was bringing up that is is what percentage of the brain now do we have mapped for these correlate regions? Like it seems like there's a lot of them all over the place. Well, Are there areas we don't know what they do? Yeah, well, that's really most, tricky. Most so, of the brain we don't know what it does. You, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. So so you can take any given thing like attention or memory and put somebody in a brain scanner and build a study to, to look at that and say, okay, these are the brain areas that are correlated with attention or memory, right? But personally, and I think uh, Tim and I are somewhat on the same uh, neuroscientific philosoph- philosophical page here, which is uh, asking where in the brain does something like attention or memory happen is kind of weird because attention and memory are just constructs that are left over from the days of psychology before you had really strong understandings of how neurons and neural circuits worked. And so putting somebody to brain scanner and saying where in the brain is attention is kind of weird because attention isn't a thing that we, we know exists necessarily, right? Attention is a term that we use as a placeholder for a behavior that we exhibit. Uh, and so instead what, what I think some, of, some more modern neuroscientists are doing is are saying, given what we know about the, neural, the, the computational and, and physical properties of neurons and how they interact, how could they work together to give rise to something that looks like what we call attention or memory? Does that make sense? Like that's a, uh, it's it's an important point. Um, so, so we what, we have yeah. lots of brain areas mapped in terms of yes, there are functions that are correlated with a bunch of different brain regions, um, but that may not be the right question to be asking in the first place. So one of the biggest criticisms that that neuroimaging had when it was first becoming popular was that uh, it was what some people called technicolor technicolor phrenology, right? So. Uh, we would design these experiments and see a particular area of the brain light up, and therefore that area of the brain kind of represented that. And I think the biggest, most egregious example of this kind of thinking is, uh, and and I've ranted about this more times than I like to admit. It was uh, there was an op-ed in the New York Times a few years ago about why we are in love with our iPhones. Uh, and it was, 
Yeah, I know. That's that's the common response you get from a neuroscientist when I bring this up. Um, so it was it was a neuroimaging study done by a marketer who um, showed pic- people pictures of their loved ones and people they didn't know, and then pictures of their iPhone that they own versus some other object. And uh, he found that a particular area of the brain called the insula was re- was more engaged when people saw their iPhones than when they saw other objects, and it was also engaged when people saw their loved ones versus strangers and so therefore he made this inferential leap that uh, because the insula is active when you're looking at your iPhone and when you're looking at your loved one therefore you're in love with your iPhone and that's you know the same logical thing of fallacy as saying fire engines are red therefore anything is red as a fire engine right uh, Russ Poldrack uh, had a, a reply to this, and he's a he's a he's got a massive database of uh, neuroimaging experiments from multiple groups called Open fMRI, and uh, he's been working with this crawler that crawls through and looks across thousands and thousands of studies and neuroimaging studies, and he found that the insula is an active is active in about one third of all experimental studies, no matter what you're doing, reading. Watching TV, listening to sounds, tapping your finger, what have you, the insula is active. And so you can't make these kind of brain-to-behavior links in this simple one-to-one way. Um, there's, it's, it's a much more complicated system than that. And part of that, I think, if Brad is right, is that we're trying to take cognitive bits of information and smash it into the brainy bits of the head and say, this is where attention is, even though attention isn't really well-defined in and of itself. Um, and so the, the best traction we're seeing in the field for understanding behavior is what Brad said, people that are saying stop, rather than try to fit behavior into the brain, can you take what we know about the brain and emulate a system that acts like it has attention, that acts like it has memory, that acts like it's moving in a particular way? And, um, and- Asking, asking the where question is tough because the brain is incredibly plastic, right, which is the term that we use to describe its malleability or, or – what have you. And so uh, what I'm about to say is somewhat contentious, but uh, there are several studies that suggest that something such as uh, somebody who is uh, congenitally blind, so blind from birth, uh, fully one, you know, third approximately, uh, I'm using heavy quotes around fully, of the brain, the cortex at least, is devoted to vision. And so the, the thinking is in these people who are congenitally blind, who haven't ever needed vision their entire lives, does that mean that one-third of their cortex isn't doing anything? And it turns out that no, it is doing something. In fact, it seems to be active when blind people are reading Braille, for example, um, in different parts. And so you get, you get remappings that can occur. And so even if we did have a really excellent map of, you know, here is in, in the brain, here's every neuron and, and, and what behavior it's, it's mapped to, uh, that could be different a year later in that same person, right? Depending on experience and behavior and, and things like that. So we actually talk about this a little bit in the book. Uh, so with the idea of echolocation, it turns out right. that there's a group of blind people who can actually echolocate. They walk into a room that makes them click sound with their mouth and they can tell you where things are in the room. And they're blind. They're, they're literally blind as a bat. Um, but they can make very accurate spatial judgments about objects in the room just by listening to echoes. And there's a kid that could skateboard, a blind kid that yeah. could skateboard by clicking. Well, well the, there's the zombies in the tombs of the blind dead that can do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so what's interesting is that if you take people who do that, I'm not sure about the zombies, but if you take the humans that can do that um, and you have and you, you know, emulate the sounds of their clicking and, and echoes back when there are objects in the room, you see this activity in 
the visual cortex. They're not seeing anything, um, but they're kind of reusing that tissue to almost the, the running theory right now is that they're reacquiring that tissue that's built for, you know, a spatial map of our visual world and changing the modality to being based on sound rather than vision. So, you know, they're, they're able to really dramatically change the function of what everybody would call visual cortex into something else. Um, so that's, that's what makes it very hard to try to make these very specific brain behavior links. And that goes back to one of the issues that I mentioned at the very beginning about one of the motivators, not issues, but one of the motivating factors for writing this book, which is the sort of poking fun, tongue-in-cheek aspects of, of poking fun of, uh, at our own field, which is if we can take something as patently ridiculous as a zombie and actually come up with semi-plausible, brainy-sounding explanations for it, uh, that suggests that maybe maybe the way that we're we're approaching the thing in the field isn't quite exactly right. <laughs> and are you finding as well that uh, similar processes maybe with other disabilities like hearing uh, impairments as well? Oh yeah, no. There's there's growing literature on this idea of reorganization following mm-hmm. uh, sensory loss. And actually, there's a historically there's a big animal literature on this, but we're just now starting to come look at this in humans. Okay. Uh, but it generally yeah, like seems cochlear be... implant studies. Oh like yeah, with people who've never heard before and then get a cochlear implant, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the remapping of of the auditory cortex and things like that. Yeah, there, there's a huge growing field on this. Actually, it was kind of, kind of partly what I did my PhD on is is looking at how different brain areas can maybe remap or compensate after some kind of damage. You know, there was this recent outbreak of uh, zombie attacks, uh, like the the news was calling it zombie apocalypse, it, like in Florida or Louisiana. The story was all about bath salts. Oh, and people, right. th- th- Did you guys get into that at all? No, not really. We, yeah, we talked a little bit but, about the aggression stuff, right? I mean, yeah. not the bath salt specifically. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if that actually I, – my, my gut feeling was that that was probably not anything to do with what was going on. I don't know. We talked about pathological aggression. Yeah. yeah. Even even the even the the famous guy who you know ate somebody's face off. It turns out he he actually didn't have bath salts in his system. Right. Um, so there is there was it was just a random psychosis. Um, and we do we do kind of get into the idea of uh, how the neocortex kind of regulates aggression and aggressive fight or flight behaviors. Oh, so like the twenty eight days later kind of zone. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think we actually start. The, the chapter on aggression by talking about 28 days later. Um, yeah, and so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing because actually in, in the brain, the, the signals that kind of suppress our, you know, anger are also the ones that suppress our kind of fear and anxiety as well. Um, so, you know, if, if the way we kind of understand how the neocortex regulates these fight-or-flight responses works, um, zombies should be just as skittish as they are angry, right? Um, because the, there's no regulation on either end of the spectrum. They'll, they, they, you should be able to spook a zombie as, as well as fight a zombie, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the hyper-aggressive stuff that was in the media uh, a few years ago, I think was more hype on stuff that actually probably happens more often than we would like to admit. Yeah, I think it got a lot of attention because of the the simultaneous zombie uh, fad going on right now. Mm-hmm. So it became a good narrative hook for for a, just a really messed up situation. Yeah, but but yeah, we we do talk about uh, in the in the scientific literature uh, what's it's called impulsive reactive aggression, which is a, a subtype of aggression, um, which is 
really just a scientific way of saying it, it, abnormal response to a non-threatening situation. Right. So like road rage versus right. the... But yeah, that's what I was thinking about. It's like four cups of Starbucks and then hitting a two hours of traffic. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're used to. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys look at non-human zombies at all as well, like those fungal-driven zombie insects? That's actually how we close out the book. We talk about uh, the cordyceps via uh, fungus and uh, you know a couple of these other different real-world, quote-unquote, uh, zombification processes like... Uh, the wasp that can remote control the roach uh, and things like that. So that's pretty, you know, you start getting to really weird, uh, really weird stuff that, you know, as you start, as we, as we're researching this and writing this stuff up, you know, you kind of have those moments of, uh, this is, this is actually kind of scary that this can happen. Like, mm-hmm. you know, damn nature, you are crazy. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we talk about brain hijacking and mother nature's kind of ability to do it. And, you know, we, we, we read about the cordopsis or, you know, the uh, jewel wasp that can control the cockroach. And we think, okay, that's the, you know, it's the animal kingdom, what have you. But it turns out that there's also a single-celled organism that can modulate human behavior. Uh, it's uh, the organism that gives you toxoplasmosis. There's a growing body of literature to suggest that people who've survived an infection of toxoplasmosis, this is um, the little single-celled organism that lives in cat poop. Uh, and it's why uh, pregnant women can't handle ca- uh, cat litter because right. um, the infection could kill the fetus, and it, and it gives you like flu-like sy- symptoms uh, if you're exposed to it. But w- what happens is that the toxoplasmosis organism sexually reproduces, but only in the cat gut. Um, so what happens is that if it gets transmitted to a non-cat organism, it reproduces asexually. But it turns out that somehow, and we still don't quite know how this works, it will modulate the reaction to fear or fearful stimuli in the organism that it's in. So the most classic example of this is if you take a rat, infect it with toxoplasmosis, and you put it in a cage next to a cat, the rat's innate instinct is to get the hell away from the feline, right? It's, 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 it's instinct is to get away from cats because they're natural predators for millennia. The rat that's been infected with the toxoplasmosis organism will actually prefer to hang out next to the cat. Mm-hmm. Um, and humans who have been infected with toxoplasmosis have a higher likelihood of engaging in highly risky behavior, not looking both ways before crossing the street, um, engaging in you know greater risk-taking behavior in general. Um, and the idea is that the organism, what it's doing is hijacking your brain, and it originally was doing this for rodents because if it could convince the rodent to get eaten by the cat, then it would get back into the cat's gut and it could sexually reproduce and you know wow. have a broader food chain. So somehow, whatever mechanisms that worked in the rodent are working in humans, and it can produce these very dramatic changes in your behavior um, just by a very simple exposure to a single-celled organism. I actually have a, a friend, uh, Patrick House. He's a uh, neuroscience PhD from Stanford. Uh, I think he's still there doing his postdoctoral work. He did his PhD with Robert Sapolsky looking at toxoplasmosis. And uh, he, you know, he, he likes to say that the zombie apocalypse actually already happened 3,000 years ago in ancient Egypt uh, <laughs> where they, you know, they worshipped cats. Uh, and so we've already been mind-controlled by the toxoplasmosis. And now we're in a post, uh, post-zombification society where we all have domesticated cats that we do their bidding. <laughs> <laughs> 
If if I was toxoplasmosis, I would make people hoarders because then they keep cats and junk for the rats to live in. You get the whole life cycle. <laughs> well, actually, so. the, the 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 you know stereotype of the crazy cat lady, mm-hmm. uh, the that behavior is toxoplasmosis behavior. So there there is there it may be a uh, that's actually that's actually part of Patrick uh, Hass's argument is the crazy cat lady. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, I mean, they, it's a great environment. Yeah, it's a really scary thing. Is there any kind of treatment for it, or uh, is it a temporary thing or permanent? It you just have to take scary. their cats away. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's actually a pretty pretty subtle effect, um, uh, and I think probably still disputed by some as to as to uh, how strong or or anything like that. But it's definitely something that is plausible uh, to right. to use the MythBusters uh, phrase. Yeah, but it would be interesting, though, uh, from a – I don't know how this such a study would be done ethically, but if you could – when treating people who have a hoarding syndrome, syndrome, like that they would check them for that. Yeah, although uh, I think – so from what I understand is in the rodent literature on toxoplasmosis, um, you could wipe away the organism and the behavioral effects are still there. So it looks to be a permanent rewiring scenario, at least oh. in the rodents. Um, but their lifespan isn't long enough to maybe allow for – Post-infection out. recovery, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I know that when we when we researched that last part for the end of the because we end the book by making a full description of what the zombie brain would look like, and then go into pos- you know possible mechanisms for the zombie apocalypse. And when researching using that, science, like, using science yeah, to, yeah, to save using, us, yeah, using exactly exactly we were using real science to try to kind of understand what was going on in the zombie brain, what could cause it, and, and ways that you could probably survive the post-zombie apocalypse. And uh, in particular, when we're reading about how a zombie infection could occur, it would, I, I got terrified. Um, yeah, because there's <laughs> a lot of real stuff out there that, that, you know, could really change your personality in a heartbeat. Like cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and bath salts. But also, you know, even more, more so than that, like, you know, very subtle repeated head injuries will cause dramatic changes in people's behavior over time. Uh, oh, and you yeah. don't even have to be knocked out, but just, you know, keep hitting your head against a wall or another player or, you know, what have you. Well, in pro wrestling, the, 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 the Crispin Wasp. Yeah. Was, oof, oof, yeah. Oof. Yeah. And you're, you're yeah. seeing, you're, you're seeing more and more evidence of these dramatic personality changes in people in sports with high head injuries. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this was due to um, what it is, what we know is orbital frontal damage, damage to the orbital frontal part of the cortex um, over these repeated kind of head injuries with time as you ram your head against somebody's fist or somebody else's helmet. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of scary. Well, you did say the studies go back all the way to the time of the Roman lesions. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Blake's had a few head injuries, too. (laughs) Knocking his head against the table. (laughs) Other people knocking their hands against my head. uh, Do you um, mind if we do a few pop culture type questions? Oh, totally. I mean, with the caveat that zombies are not real. Yes, yes. As long as we can have that asterisk. <laughs> we just have to keep saying that over and over again. <laughs> so, uh, of all the zombie movies, which to you guys offers the most plausible explanation for a zombie outbreak? Oh, wow. Um, again, with the caveat that zombies are not real. Our audience knows that. I really like uh, 28 Days Later's uh, aggression 
right? So, of course, the zombie purists will argue that that's not even a zombie. Um, but I, I really like the rage zombies from 28 Days Later. Uh, it's certainly plausible that you could have uh, potentially something that just causes this rampant amount of uh, aggressive, aggressive behaviors. That seems the most real uh, to me. Yeah, as, as a scientist, I would have to agree that, that the way they were presented, except for the speed of the infection, right. um, the fact that, you know, the whole reason it's called 28 Days Later is not to spoil anything, but, you know, they're not undead. So if they don't eat, they don't, they don't really do anything for survival. They just want to rip people's heads off, right? Um, and they eventually starve to death. And so if you can kind of wait out that time period of where people will starve to death, then, you know, the plague kind of washes itself away. Um, and then also, too, the, you know, there was, no, there, was, there was no innate reason for the behavior except just simple aggression. Like, that's, that's the whole reason that they were zombies is just that they were angry and violent, right? Um, and so if, if, you, if you kind of look at human behavior in context like riots or, you know, what some of the violence that happens in these uh, often tribal kind of conflicts you see this kind of rampant disregard for human life and this very kind of self-rewarding aggression. Um, and I think 28 days later hit it right on the head. So in real life, do you think something like that would happen sooner or would it take longer to happen? In, my, in terms like spreading, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's a hard one. Um, okay. So the only thing I could say is uh, there, there is a, a, a controversial book uh, called Crazy Like Us, wherein the author, uh, whose name escapes me right now, uh, makes the argument that uh, certain mental disorders are actually spread culturally. So okay. the case he brought up forth was uh, talking about anorexia didn't exist in uh, uh, Hong Kong until there is a case in, I forget, like the 90s or something like that, of a young woman who died of anorexia and the news media in Hong Kong picked it up and said that this American uh, Western uh, disease is now in Hong Kong. And the incidence of anorexia just shot up, skyrocketed. And the idea was that familiarity with uh, this disease caused people to adopt the disease. And this is actually well-known in even suicide. Uh, there's actually journalistic guidelines on reporting about famous suicides with you know Robin Williams being the most recent famous example because you get... A, a spike in suicides anytime there is a major uh, news reporting on suicides. Uh, Ethan Waters. Oh, thank you. Is the thank author. you. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it, that's interesting because um, I think from a brain function perspective, you've got this whole idea. I, you've, I'm sure you guys are familiar with memetics, memes. Right. Mm -hmm. So the idea, so you have this layer of abstraction on top of the basic brain function, right? So somehow we have this cultural existence that's in addition or seems to be in addition to our regular self-identity right yeah. so we pick up all these additional pieces of information process them these ideas these behaviors so um yeah that's um does that seem plausible to you from a neurology perspective that 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 something like that could culturally drive someone to behave such a way well, if, you're, I, if you're not familiar with the thing you can't really do the thing right so it does make some sense in, in terms of um, if you've never encountered the idea of undereating pathologically before, would that some would that be something that would would it manifest differently, right? Would that whatever the is there is is anorexia? Uh, this is going to be. I don't want to piss anybody off, but is is diagnosing it, a, it requires is it a disease knowing about it in too. And of itself? Like, is there one specific right. thing, one biological thing that happens that causes anorexia specifically, 
or is anorexia a manifestation, one type of manifestation of, of uh, that biological thing? Does that, does that make sense? Um, it does. You know, I think Brad brought up a really interesting idea for a movie in the future of a culturally transmitted zombie infection. The hipster apocalypse that will work. There, there's yeah. the movie Pontypool that oh, actually touches, yes. touches on this a little bit, which is uh, the, the, it's, it's sort of zombies. It's hard to tell. But the zombieism is actually spread through language. It's like it's a mimetic virus. So there is the, the radio station. Yeah, guy. Exactly. yeah. So there actually yeah, okay. is already a, a movie that sort of touches on this, a zombie movie specifically. <laughs> OK, I'll have to see that one. So uh, going back to, a little bit to the, the idea of how culture influences the brain, there's a growing body of evidence. Uh, and it's just starting because we were just starting to get the sample sizes this this big um, where we're seeing evidence of how your social structure actually influences the morphology and function of the brain. Um, so Lisa Feldman Barrett is probably the most famous person who studies this. And she said uh, research showing that the organization of your social network, how many people you know on a daily basis, the number of high contact social roles you have in your environment, things like that, actually predicts things like the size of an area of the brain known as the amygdala and how the amygdala talks to different parts of the cortex. Um, and recent work that, that some collaborators and I have done have shown that you know, uh, socioeconomic status and the, again, structure of your social network can predict things like the integrity of the connections in the brain. Um, so there's, there's this growing acceptance that, you know, our brain doesn't live in a vacuum. Our brain lives in this cultural, social ecosystem. And, you know, everything that affects our behavior and our body is also going to, to in some way affect right. our brain. Exactly. Um, and it's, so, uh, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising. It's not some like, you know, mystical or weird phenomenon. It's just a, our environments affect our brains. So therefore, mm-hmm. you know, why not? <laughs> I wanted to ask you guys about the title of your book. It seems to reference uh, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. So are you guys fans of him? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm a Philip K. Dick fan. <laughs> Thought so. Uh, do, Androids, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was actually one of the first, uh, first introductions for me to science fiction as literature. <laughs> uh, and that really, that really sparked my teenage foray into geekdom, I would have to say. Uh-huh. He always had such bizarre titles. <laughs> it, it, what, <laughs> so for real. And then the, the, it, obviously that was the, the basis for Blade Runner, but the book is so much different, I think in many ways better. Yeah. Well, the, uh, fantastic. The, yeah. The book gets into a lot of issues that as cognitive neuroscientists, we, we, we kind of wonder on a daily basis, like, you know, what is the nature of conscious thought? What is the nature of volition? Um, could you, could you, if you built a completely artificial brain, that acted on its own accord, do you now have a fully conscious, independent being? If so, what rights does it have? Um, so those are very kind of interesting questions just from a you know, scientific point of view that we, we address and tackle on a daily basis. So the, the affection towards Philip K. Dick, I think, was just inherent in both of us just because you know, he was interested in a lot of the questions that we study on a, on a daily basis. Yeah, exactly. So we try to ask every guest on Monster Talk if we can remember to do it. Uh, <laughs> what are your favorite monsters? This is our wind-up question. Uh, uh, easily, easily for me, it's got to be Freddy Krueger. Oh, really? Yeah. We haven't okay. had that before. That's <laughs> no, a new one, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally unique. Uh, and it was, it was something I watched as a really probably inappropriately young kid. 
<laughs> and had nightmares, like all of my nightmares for 20 years. Anytime I had a nightmare was Freddy Krueger was involved in that nightmare somehow. I mean, it just really stuck with me. And I either have to give Wes Craven a hug or slap him or something like that one of these days because it really, really shaped my, uh, my love for horror. Um, just, just the idea that there's this, this thing that only exists in your dreams where you're totally vulnerable. You don't really have any control, uh, which is absolutely fascinating to me as a kid. Uh, so for me, I, I, there's, I, there's a, way too many for, for me to choose down. But I would say the most influential monster of my childhood was John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, and again, it was that, you know, it's this, it's this creature that, you know, it's a weird alien creature. But the fact that it took these shapes of people you knew that, you know, you could, the people you knew were not the people you know. It was, it was, you know it's like having Cotard's delusion, not Cotard's delusion. What's the, uh, Capgras delusion. You know, the people you know aren't really the people you know. Um, and as, as, as a kid, that was a terrifying concept. Um, and so I, I would say that, that John Carpenter's The Thing was my, my most influential early life horror movie monster. Yeah, I, I watch that movie every year. Um, <laughs> Just once a year? Well, I watch it and I watch the original yeah. and it's like I do this thing. I call it the thing thing where I wait till wintertime and it's really cold. And then I turn off lights and open the windows and make the room as cold as possible and then watch it in the cold and eat chili. Sorry, I have, to, I have to be the asshole California thing, but I'm in San Diego. What is what is cold? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's well, it's not that common here. It's like really hard to pull together. I, I have to base it on the weather. I, mean, I can't just say it's going to be Friday. It's got it's got to be a specific like this. Got to be it's got to be below thirty outside. Or it's not even worth doing, right? Yeah, come to Colorado. <laughs> there you go. Well, we the you know, maybe I will. Last winter when we went down to negative. Yeah. Place. So yeah. So I, I think next time we get a polar vortex, I'm totally doing a thing film festival. Oh, you should. It's it's it. It really adds to it. I, and if you get the Blu-ray, it's fantastic. A lot of extras, and uh, there's so much. You know, let me tell you something. Like when I was watching it this last time, I have a big screen TV. I was watching it on Blu-ray, and I saw there was an Easter egg. It was so bizarre. There's a uh, there's a book on the shelf in the rec room, uh, and it's. Uh, it's like a lot of the books there are real, but there was this one book that only existed as a prop. It was a prop from a TV show called Mrs. Columbo. And the prop was in the, that episode was a character had written it. And that character was played by Donald Pleasance. And Donald Pleasance is not in the movie, the thing, but obviously he's in a lot of Carpenter stuff. So it seems to me like a little homage to Pleasance who was not able to be in the film. Right. But um, I haven't been able to really do much beyond take a picture of it and document that it exists. But I have IMDb we did not accept it as a submission. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to have to keep an eye out for it next time I watch it. Yeah, Donald Pleasant yeah, it's, was it's in a, uh, Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he was in uh, a lot of his films. Uh, I just watched uh, Prince of Darkness uh, like two nights ago. I'm a big fan of Carpenter's older stuff. I, his new stuff, I'm glad he's still working, but um, I really prefer his older stuff. I'm sure he would love to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Dr. Karen Stolzno, we interviewed Brad Wojtek and Tim Versteinen about zombies, brain science, and their new book, Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep, which is coming out September 21st, 2014. A link to that will be in the show notes. And I have to say that after talking with them, I'm really looking forward to its release. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The ideas we express on this show are not necessarily the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. 
If you want to know the official opinions of Skeptic Magazine, you can wait until dark and go down the stairs into the underground storage area and look in one of the pressure-sealed barrels labeled Property of the Army in case of emergency call. No, no, no. You know what? It's even easier than that. You can just order the magazine from skeptic.com and have it delivered straight to your door. Or, if you're like me, you can go to the bookstore and pretend to find it accidentally. And then as you pick it up and you read it, you can turn to one of the attractive customers nearby and say with a tone of incredulity, Can you believe what they put in this skeptic magazine? And that's how I met my wife. Hey, say, are you going to the Atlanta Star Party? It's not too late to sign up using the code MONSTERTALK2014. Uh, that's uh, with a capital M and a capital T. To get that $5 discount, that's atlantastarparty.com. You'll learn about astronomy. You'll meet interesting people. You'll have delicious food. And you'll be supporting a good cause. I hope you can make it. Hey, I want to say a quick thanks to all the folks who have donated recently to Monster Talk through PayPal. I really appreciate it. We have another episode transcribed, and it'll be up very soon. A thank you to D.R. Crane, Chris Steinbeck, Panagiotis Sulos, James Roach, Hilton Cockcroft, Alexander Eisenminger, I hope I didn't mess that up, Paul Komorowski, and A. Nani Mouse? Is that say, Am I saying this right? Hopefully I'm saying that right. A. Nani Mouse. Wait a minute. Thanks so much for your contributions. They're very much appreciated. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. You can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally. Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Uh, yeah, so this is... And scene. <laughs> uh -oh. Brad, Brad always gets kicked out of conversations as far for the course. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.